lead people, manage processes. Don't manage people. I've laid awake at night thinking, oh my God, we need more business, you know, we're barely scratching by. And then I've also laid awake at night thinking, God, it's really busy, huh? but the cash flow is rubbish, how am I going to pay the wages, all of those. I know what that feels like. Say yes, don't say no, because if you say no, the opportunity's gone. And I always treated the failure bit as, right, what have I learned? I was straight into, right, what have I learned? Where could I improve the car? Where am I going to find that time? Here's another little trick. You're going to a meeting, you're a small businessman, get there first, be in the meeting room first, have your chair and your jacket over the back of it. They're joining your meeting. What do I need? What do I need to be really fit for the business I'm running? What does the business need to be really fit? Where are the incremental gains in the business? I've had some ill health since last July, which has had a really pretty big impact on me. I, I tried to still do that daily thing of getting up and going, right, it's a new day, I've got to try and improve a bit today. So, so I, was, I was doing things, I couldn't walk. And it was pathetic, you know, I got up. I could walk around the flat twice and I was done in, things, things like that. And then the next morning I got up and I did it again. And I tried not to think about anything other than today. I, I love my life, I love my job, and I'm happy in my skin, and I wouldn't be like this if I changed anything. I'm on a mission to help the world to see success differently. We're sharing the stories of our guests. I hope to inspire those that listen. This is the Different Hats podcast produced by H2 Productions. I hope you can join us on this journey. I just wanted to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Nostos, an authentic experience of Greece right here in the heart of Hove. In a world brimming with dining options, finding that one place that captivates your palate and heart isn't always easy. It's about more than food. It's the stories, the ambience, the slice of another world. This is the essence of Nostos, an award-winning Greek restaurant. With traditional recipes passed down through generations, each dish promises a story and a piece of heritage. And Nostos is more than just a restaurant. It's a community contributor. Each dining experience supports initiatives close to their heart, from local charities to cultural events, enriching Brighton and Hove's social fabric. They also provide catering services, bringing Greek cuisine to your personal events. For a taste of Greece without leaving town, visit nostos-hove.co.uk. And when you do go, say Sam recommended the feta nests. Oh my God, they are amazing. Okay, welcome to another episode of the podcast. Um, I often, I guess, I often talk on the podcast and, I, and, other, and the other businesses that I sort of run. Um, that I'm really fortunate; I get to meet some amazing people on my journey. Um, certain people, you immediately have a connection with. For me, just over a year ago, I sat opposite my guest over what was going to be a brief lunch. Four and a half hours later, we've had a, after a wonderful conversation. We've had many, many conversations since, and I think sometimes business connections you meet and it transcends business and becomes friendship. And that's certainly what my guest will bring today. He's someone I really class after just knowing him for just over a year. 
become a very good friend and I'm, I'm delighted to welcome the brand manager of Handles Banker, Mr. Simon Nicholson, to the <laughs> podcast. How are you, sir? I'm very good, thank you. I, I don't remember the lunch being four hours, but it, it, was, it, it was long. It was a long lunch. It's it was the longest I've ever made a salad last, <laughs> I think. But, <laughs> but, um, it was good. And I, 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 remember, I remember at the time seeing him going, mate, we should get you on the podcast at some point. And then since then, we've, every time we have a conversation, we go... Could just record these conversations, couldn't we? Yeah. And then I thought, well, let's just get you in the studio and do it anyway. And, and here we are. Yeah, good to be here. Mate. Listen, um, with everything, we always start kick off with the people's stories. Got to start somewhere. So I want to know a little bit um, about life growing up and how that shaped who sits in front of me today. Wow. Okay. Um, life growing up. Uh, so um, my dad was an Air Force officer, so uh, life growing up was on Air Force bases, which is quite a cool place to be a young kid, really, uh, who's interested in aircraft. Uh, but I think, I think it was more about, for me, the environment that my parents created. So my dad was an interesting guy. He was quite challenging. But if I sort of describe him for you, he... In the days of school certificate, so before O-levels, A-levels and all of that sort of stuff existed, they had school certificate. Um, and he didn't make it to school certificate. Uh, and, and the reason for that is the headmistress's son was at the school and there might have been a bit of a fight between my dad and the headmistress's son. Uh, and the headmistress told him off and he might have punched her um, and he ended up looking for a new school at the wrong time. So he didn't do school certificate. But what he did want to do was join the Air Force um, and fly a Spitfire. That's what he wanted to do. But he didn't know. He thought everyone in the Air Force got a Spitfire. It sounds naive, but when you're a, a young lad from a, a relatively humble family, you think things like that. So he joined the Air Force of a, as an apprenticed radio fitter on Lancaster's. And that's, he's 16 years old, you know, he's learning to be a radio fitter. Four years later, he's been through Cranley Officers Training School and he's a flying officer. And that never happens, normally. Yeah. But this is the sort of guy, this, this sort of focus and determination. And he, and he had that, um, and we grew up around that, so he, he huge work ethic. Uh, my mum was the same, um, so wherever we went, and we moved a lot because he was posted all over the place. Mm -hmm. The first thing she did was got a job. And I remember at one place where we were stationed, that she couldn't find a job, so she started a nursery school. Because that's what you do, isn't it? You know. So this was the environment, really, that, that I grew up in. And we went off to boarding school, which was difficult. Um, but otherwise, you're moving school every couple of years, which, which also is not really a good thing. So, so, so that was my formative years, really. And, and I grew up expecting to work hard expecting to have to um, earn everything, really. Um, and that's really, that's really how it's been. Yeah. What, was, what, was, what was boarding school like? Did so you, did you, I, I you, would, did you like I, school? I, I, so I loved it, my brother hated it. We were at the same schools, yeah. so, so different people react differently. And we're different characters, really. Yeah. Um, so he's much more sort of e emotive and sensitive, I think, than I am. So I, I had a whale of a time. He didn't. Um, so, so, but I would describe it as Lord of the Flies with a little bit of supervision. <laughs> so, so if you can imagine a boarding school with 800 boys, which yeah, is yeah. my last boarding school, um, 
mainly run in reality it's run by the school monitors with the the, the um, school staff one step back mm. so uh, that you know there are things that go on with <laughs> so, uh, so so you have to you, you learn to look after yourself pretty quickly really um, but the education's good yeah um, but, but the social bit is, is interesting uh, and then when you leave school of course for me I'd gone from boarding school air force base suddenly out in the world and that was a bit of a big adjustment really because I guess I guess from boarding school air force a lot of structure and discipline yeah and going out into the world oh, I, I just went mad really yeah. yeah just went mad wasted a load of years really doing what yeah. was your oh you know my parents hated motorbikes, so I bought one. Um, I had lots of different jobs. As long as I had enough money to buy beer, I was pretty happy, really. Uh, none of the things that, that they expected and hoped I would do. Because we, we had a private education, which was mm. difficult for my parents to do, and went to very good schools. And I think my, my I know my dad had this hope that, you know, I, I would go to university and do all those sort of things. But I'd really had enough by the time I did my A levels, and I, I just, I just went, I went mad. <laughs> what, 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 what was your, um, but at, at school, did you have any, like, any dreams, ambitions? Like that's what I want to do eventually when I get out into the wide world. That's what I want to do. No, and um, I'm still not sure what I want to do uh, <laughs> when I grow up. <laughs> that's kind of how, that's kind of how I describe it. I mean, I, I, I tried all sorts of different things at school, and I always envied these. There were lots of people that I was at school with who knew exactly what they wanted to do. So they knew what A-levels they needed and what university degree they wanted and what career they were going to follow. I had absolutely no idea, no idea whatsoever. I didn't think I wanted to be in the Air Force because I'd grown up around it. Um, I knew my dad hated the Army, so I made out I wanted to join the Army for a little while, and I went to Army courses. and all I, I didn't want to join the Army. Um, I, I just didn't know. I had no idea. Um, and I left school and I kind of wandered around a bit and did lots of different things and really never never really knew what I wanted to do. But you know, see, I, I, I think that for, for me, and I'm still similar, like, that's why we share so, so much, because I'm still like that now, still, I'll try this, I'll try that. Mm. Um, and I think that's, I, I, in my head, sometimes I frame that as a little bit of a superpower that you go, because you're going to, because I think the people in the minority are the ones that go, that's what I want to do, and I'm going to follow that through and go and do that, and then they have a career out. Like my wife's a perfect example of it. I've known her since she was 11. She wanted to be a solicitor. She is a solicitor. She went to one of the only two people out of our year that went to university. She went on, but she had a focus from a young age. That's what I want to do, and she's living that, and she's got a 20-year career as a solicitor. Fantastic. But I think she's in the minority. There's so many, more so, majority would be people like me and you know, where you're at school and haven't got a clue. Well, like you said, I'm 45, still really don't know what I want to do and I'm going to keep trying things until... So, so why is it a superpower? Because I, I think you... For me, I guess for me, life is an opportunity and I will keep doing these things until I find the thing or something that which I feel like I'm at now, sitting here right now, this is my... Is this it now? This is my ikigai the Japanese thing that a lot of people know about but this is what lights me up this is what fulfills me And but actually the, the whole essence of the and the name of the brand the different hats the fact that I do do different things gives me a variety and a, you know 
Right, it's a spice of life, right? Yeah. That's yep. potentially for me how I, 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 I look at it. I, I think that is some, that's how it can be reframed as a superpower, potentially. Mm. Keen to know your thoughts on that, though. What do you think about that, Pete? I've never thought about it like that, to yeah. be honest. Um, I, and I didn't think it was a bad thing not knowing what I wanted mm. to do because I just tried lots of different things. Um, but, and I, but I did envy these people who knew exactly what they wanted to do. I've always thought that must be really nice. Yeah. Um, and lots of people say to me, you know, uh, you know, you've had this career in banking, you, it must be great to know you wanted to do that. I had absolutely no idea this is what I wanted to do. Well, but I love it, yeah. actually. But I never expected it. So uh, it was part of my just doing different things, you know, and it was completely left field, really. But th this is why I then, uh, again, I'll push back on that, because I, I think that by doing the different things that you've done, and we'll come on to obviously you know, business and stuff like that, that th the different things that you've done will make you a better leader, a better banker, a better business person because of the different experiences that you've you've had, no? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Definitely makes me a better banker. Yeah, hundred percent. Because you look at it. Let's say someone has come out of, has gone to university, finance, da -da -da, come out and gone into banking. But you're describing the typical banker. Yeah. 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 Which then so only one side of the desk, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly, exactly yeah. that. Well, look, to, so, to, you, you obviously mentioned your long career in banking, and people will know you as people who, who know you in the community. A lot of our listeners will know mm. Simon from Hannah's Banking yeah. um, and Brilliant Banking. But I don't know how many, because I certainly didn't know it, but about running your own company. Yeah. Talk to me about that. What, what, how did that come about? What happened? Talk to me about that. So, um, so I met a girl, um, uh, and she changed my life, literally. She absolutely changed my life. So I met a girl who had a couple of kids, um, and I, I, they're my kids as far as I'm concerned. You know, But we got together, and uh, she was working for an advertising company. I was working for a transport company, and you know, we were doing all right. It was okay. But we were never going to be able to do things like privately educate the kids if we wanted to or anything like that. We, we were making a living. And we just felt that maybe we should do something different and see if we could make a success of it and have an, an opportunity at least to make the money to do the things we wanted to do. Provide security for the family, educate the kids if, if they wanted that, you know, those kind of things. Um, <laughs> and when, when I talk about it now, it sounds crazy. So, uh, and, and of course, when we got together, I owned a house and she owned a house. So... We we did what you do. So we sold my house, because you do, don't yeah. you? And she remortgaged her house, and we started a business. And if you remember, do you remember MFI, the MFI shops? So we went to MFI, bought a couple of little desks that we squished into this tiny little spare bedroom we got, and we set a phone up, and uh, we thought, right, well, I'd come from the, the transport industry, so we, we did some market research, which is open yellow pages. Yeah, there's lots of couriers and transport companies. That'll be good. So that was a, that was... So we, we started it, um, and we ran it for 15 years. Yeah. Um, and it was, sometimes it was good fun, sometimes it was awful. Um, and we had a, a sort of vision of how we thought it should look in the future, and we got there. We, we did end up creating 
the sort of business we wanted to, but not exactly how we thought it would go, which is kind of, which is interesting because you follow opportunities, don't you? Um, and, and and what actually happened is when we arrived at that point, we didn't like it. Why? Because um, it felt like you, you can create a bit of a monster. Really, it felt like uh, I was on hamster wheel. Uh, and I know um, my wife Nicole f felt similar. Um, uh, and we had a, a, a guy who was interested in buying it, so it all just fitted together. In the end, it fitted together really well, and it was an easy decision. But along the way, you know, we had we had difficult times. We did contracts with people that we shouldn't have done, and they went broke, owing us lots of money, and all those kind of problems that small businesses have. I've laid awake at night thinking, oh my God, we need more business, you know, we're barely scratching by. And then I've also laid awake at night thinking, God, it's really busy, huh? but the cash flow is rubbish, how am I going to pay the wages, all of those. I know what that feels like, you know, I, and it's difficult, isn't it? Um, and you're on your own. Um, but I had Nicole with me and she was just brilliant, you know, so uh, we just forged on and felt that we could do it. So. How important is that, like, to, like you said, to have that? Yeah, business partner and life partner actually but yeah. you're both both in it together oh massive you know absolutely massive uh, and she's really clever but doesn't realize it which is <laughs> which is which is quite incredible really um so she did she's good at she's really good at a lot of the things i'm rubbish at yeah. um and vice versa really uh, so the business was really successful but it just ended up not being what we wanted and I think when we got to that point, it had done what we wanted it to do as well. So, so we'd we'd reached a point where we were doing fulfilment rather than just transport. So we had a warehouse and you know packing stuff and sending it out, all that kind of thing. And the large companies were starting to get involved in that and making some quite big investments. So we were at a crossroads, and in business that happens all the time, doesn't it? Yeah. You come to these crossroads, and the next step would be making a bigger investment and, um, and investing in technology and things like that. And we just didn't have the appetite to do that. Um, and we weren't enjoying the business anymore. So, so we got out. And we didn't have any idea what we were going to do when we did that. Yeah. We just got out and sold it. So it's, that's, you know. Talk, talk, so do, do you remember, I'm keen to always, tap, like, when people mention about, you know, some of the, Difficult periods, and you know, lying awake at night, which we've all been. I'm still dead <laughs> today. Or where yeah. you lie there, oh, where am I going to pay that bill? Or where am I going to pay them wages? What, what? Talk to me about your mindset around that period. What, what is it about you like that helps you get through that? Get through those periods. What is it in you, in your mindset that helps you get to get through those periods? I think just quite resilient, to be honest. Um, try and. You're going to ask me about motor racing later, and that comes into this. So try and get up in the morning, and it's just another day. Make the bed. Yeah, make the bed, and get on with it. Really, um, and don't don't ring the bell. So you know what I'm talking about. So just don't give up. You just keep going. Get up every day, and and actually, I, I have this belief that most of the time, if you talk to people, they know what to do. Whether they've got the appetite to do it is is a different question, but they know what to do. So you just have to say to yourself, I need to get on and do it. And sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's making a decision which feels a bit rash. But you know what to do. That's such good advice. I, guess, 
It's hard, isn't it? Because when you're in that sometimes, it, it, like you said, the answers, it's not overly, it doesn't have to be overly complicated, does no. it? The, no, no. the answers generally, they're yeah. staring you in the face. Yeah. It's just taking that action. And, and actually, a key thing, and I'm keen to get your thoughts on this, I guess where surrounding yourself with good people you, you said like you had your biggest partner was your life partner so to have mm. each other to bounce those ideas off and have that support network around mm. you ask for support ask for help is such a key thing no? 100% and most people want to help you as well but um, you need to ask them yeah. and it's a tricky balance isn't it because if they offer you advice you feel like they're interfering yeah. but actually if you ask for it they'll, they'll give it to you yeah. but you need a great support network everyone does so, so it's interesting, so, like, and, and that's, uh, I'm so keen to obviously tap into that about the, the business. But again, back to where you are now and being a banker, and the, the, we mentioned earlier about the, the life skills that you, and the knowledge that you would have gained from running your own business. That you can sit opposite someone and look at it through a completely different lens to a, a potentially a, mm. say the average banker. That's Half maybe, but someone a stereotypical yeah. bank manager would do. Yeah. You'd be able to look through it from a, a completely different lens. Not only that, I think that the more powerful thing is you can talk to the customer in a different way, yeah. and that's so. The moment you say to a customer, "I used to run a business, so I've sat that side of the desk," everything changes. Just instantly, everything changes because they feel that you understand them in a way the typical bank manager doesn't. Um, so uh, the whole journey was interesting for me, really interesting. And I'm a nosy person, I, and I've got a job now where I can go and see all these amazing businesses, walk in and they'll show me around and tell me all about their businesses. It's perfect for me. And the fascinating thing about that is I could show you two businesses but outwardly they look exactly the same, they do the same thing, they maybe produce the same product, but under the skin they're completely different. And it fascinates me. So I, I, I'm quite nosy, so this is why this is the perfect job for me in so many ways. Do you, with all the different businesses you've seen, running your own business, is there, do you think there's certain traits that business owners have that will separate them from the successful ones and the unsuccessful ones? Uh, well, there are. I mean, th th there's the... Everything you need to run a small business, because they all start as a small business. No one starts a PLC one yeah. day. You know, it doesn't happen like that. They start as, as a bloke with a desk and a phone, usually, or something yeah. like that. Uh, and you have to have this sort of dogged determination, and you, you just don't give up. Because there are plenty of times where you probably should give up, but Did you, you don't. Did you have that over the 15 years? Was there times when oh, yeah. you used to sit there and go, Yeah, there, there, were, there were probably times we should have stopped, but we just didn't. We just kept going. Uh, and, and if you read about just about any business you like and you'll find there's a point where the liquidators were banging on the door or something like that and they refused to quit and, they, and then they turned a corner. It's such a common story. And that's because you need someone who is determined to do it. Uh, and then the difference, I think, that really jumps out is you have this transition between my business and the business. So for a long time, it's my business. I make all the decisions. It's mine. Uh, and if I fall under a bus tomorrow, it's, it's in trouble. 
But as it grows, it becomes an entity in its own right, and then it becomes the business. And if you can't make that transition, the business doesn't grow. It stops because you won't let go. Uh, and that's the tricky bit, and that's where you need to you bring in people who can do the job probably better than you because they're probably good at one bit of it. And you have to release the reins a little bit, and it becomes the business. Uh, and if you can do that, then it grows. And you can you hire people who are smarter than you, don't you? That's what you try and do. Uh, and that's difficult as well. Lots of people don't like doing that. Um, but that's uh, And the successful businesses are the ones that do that, and you see them really, really start to flourish. And then the guy that started it, when he's in, the, in work, he's interfering all of a sudden. <laughs> um, so it's quite a difficult transition, but you do see that. And you, you see plenty of businesses that don't get that far, and they're great businesses, and they give the owner a great lifestyle, but they've not gone that further step. So I find that really interesting. And then the other thing that, that they do very well, these businesses that grow, is they look over the horizon. So let's say, let's say you're turning over a million pounds today. There's a few interesting barriers. If you're turning over a million pounds today, the next big hurdle is actually four million pounds because at four million pounds, the business has to look different. So if I said to you today, Sam, you're turning over a million quid, what does this business need to look like to do four million? You would be able to tell me. So the answer is, well, you need to make it look like that now. But the unpalatable part of that is, well, if I do that, we'll make less profit. Yep. But you'll, get, you'll be able to go to four million if you do that. So you have these constant times where you step back. So you get to four million, and the next barrier actually is about seven million. So you're at four million. The business is doing great, earning lots of money. Maybe you want the Aston Martin or whatever it is, but... We need to make it look like a business that can do seven million now. So it needs more people, different infrastructure. You need to invest in it. That means you can't have that Aston Martin because we're going to spend the money making it look like that. So it's another backward step. But then the business can do seven million. Do you see what I mean? So it's a very interesting. Uh, and the, the businesses that do well are prepared to do those difficult decisions really because at the time you're just starting to enjoy the fruits of your labor <laughs> and then you have to change it um, of course in the end it all catches up and you you know there's enough money to do the things you want but it, it's fascinating it really is and it's hard as well i guess for for people to because we don't always go like you said when you first start that business setting up your desk in a room somewhere don't necessarily go right. I'm starting this business, and in five years' time, I'll, it's going to be a ten million pound business. You, no. you start it, and there's them small steps, but become because you put them blood, sweat, and tears in, it becomes your baby, and mm. that is, I guess, the difficult part sometimes to let go. Depending, I guess, on. I'd like to. I'd, I'd just if I push back a little bit, and I go right. Depending on what that individual wants, right? Yeah. Because yep. actually. I'll give you an example. So, Kevin Byrne sold Checker Trade for 90 million. He loved that business and he mm. sat up for six million. He spoke to me about it and he was, you could tell, it, uh, still now, the passion he talked about that mm. business he loved. I remember the day I stood up and I'm going to go national when I put that on the thing. He talked about the day he sold it and you sort of go, like you said, you enjoy the fruits of your labour and you feel like you've got what you'd set out to achieve maybe and actually that was an anti-climax for 
But did he get what he set out to achieve? Did he set out to build it up and sell it? Well, yeah, no. It's the thing he sold it because he didn't want to. And I think this is the key. Like he, he, yeah. he said, as much as that money, and it's ninety million. Yeah. As much as that money's changed his life, and it, it probably depressed him though, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. He, he, go, he, said, he even sat here and said to me, he goes, much of that money's changed my life, I wish I still had what I had. There you go. And that, that's, another, that's another thing that you see in businesses. The, the most successful businesses often have someone in there who it, stop, it stops being about the money and they're doing it because they love doing it. I mean, some of the biggest customers I deal with at the moment don't need to do another single deal, but they do them. And they don't do them for the money. They do it because they love what they're doing. And, th- and that, for me, in life has got to be, got to be what we all want to try mm. to do, right? To do yeah. something that we love doing that lights us up. That like podcasts. Like podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> like sitting and having a chat with me, mate. Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly that. But then, so to, to what, what was what went through your head? What were, where was you? from a mindset point of view at the time of selling the business? Were, was it a euphoric moment? Was it a, oh, glad I've got... It was a <laughs> moment. Oh, okay. And we uh, we looked at it and said, because uh, we, we had the business, we, we never quite got it to the point, if I look back on it now, I don't, didn't realise it at the time, it never became the business, it was still our business. Yeah. And, and knowing what I've learned since becoming a banker, I could have done that differently. But it, and it was all consuming. So when we went on holiday with the kids, my wife used to work every morning, remotely, because mm-hmm. she ran all the accounts and everything. Um, and it gave us a nice lifestyle. You know, we, it was a very nice lifestyle, but we just had enough of it. So it was a phew. Um, and we'd, we'd accepted the fact that maybe we wouldn't live in such a big house. You know, maybe we'd change our lifestyle a bit. And we'd, okay, we might bank some money, but we'd, both go out and get jobs and maybe we'd have paid holidays and things like that and our life would be different but we felt that's what we were looking for uh, and uh, and that's not exactly what happened <laughs> so um, uh, it, but it's never what you expect is it so, so let's go on to that then what, what what did happen? What happened? Okay. So, so the guy we sold the business to um, wanted uh, my wife Nicole to stay on and continue doing the job she was doing, which which she did, um, and she did that I think for about six months. Um, I didn't have anything to do, and he didn't want me around really. He wanted me to introduce him to a few of the customers, and then he wanted me out of the way, which I which is understandable. So I found myself doing things like, oh, you know, hanging out the washing and. Um, trying to cook a meal, I can't cook, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so I needed to get a job. Yeah. Um, and what happened next was was kind of quite interesting, really. So while I was doing that, it's occasionally I would still go and do odd jobs for the business if he needed someone. Um, but I didn't even have a CV. Um, so I thought, well, the first thing, we better get a CV done. Uh, so we've paid a CV writing company to write my CV, and I'll never forget it. This I had a long interview with them over the phone and this CV arrived and a cover letter that you could use to apply for jobs. And in the interim, most evenings when Nicole came home from work, we spent on the internet looking for jobs that I could do. We had no idea what I could do. You know, I, Who wants to employ a guy who's been running his own business for 15 years? You know, he'll prob- he'll, he might be a difficult employee, mightn't he? You know? <laughs> might not like being told what to do, all that kind of thing. So... 
Anyway, this CV arrived back, and we're reading it and going, blimey, this bloke sounds good, you know. <laughs> Who the hell is he? But, um, so I thought, well, okay, um, we've, we've, put up, we've been looking at various websites, so I posted my CV up on Monster. And Nicole got a call from a headhunter um, who worked for a high street bank wanting to know if he could have a conversation with me. So she said, well, he's in a meeting at the moment. I wasn't. I was driving a forklift truck for the day, helping <laughs> unload a big Arctic. Um, you know, which, uh, and I loved it. Every man should have a forklift truck, honestly. It's fantastic. <laughs> so um, anyway, I phoned this guy back, and he was, he was phoning from Barclays Bank, High Street Bank. And he's saying things to me like, have you thought about working in banking? Uh, and I'm sort of, is this a joke? You know, I mean... It was just so left field for me. I'd been running a small business at the end of the day, you know. Mm. Um, why would a bank want to employ me? Um, but I thought, well, if they want to have a chat to me, then uh, I'll go and do it, you know. Because one of the things my dad used to talk about all the time, just quickly mm. on a tangent, he used to say, say yes, don't say no, because if you say no, the opportunity's gone. And if they're asking you to do something, they think you can do it. Obviously, don't be silly. You know, if they go, we'd like you to do the hundred meters in the next Olympic Games. It's you know that you're not <laughs> going to do that. But but within reason, if if they're saying we'd like to you to do this, they think you can do it. And if you say no, that opportunity has gone. And this is what he used to say all the time. So I thought, well, I'll say yes. So I said yes, and I had this whole series. I think about eight different interviews at, at the bank. I found it really quite intimidating. These people were clever, I thought. These people are clever, big swanky offices. You know, why are they talking to me? And it went on and on and on. And then we'd kind of come to the conclusion that that, that wasn't going to happen. And then out of the blue, they said, we'd like you to have a proper formal interview. Uh, uh, and what they were looking for, it was it was quite interesting. So in... Uh, in the sort of corporate side of Barclays Bank, they have industry-focused teams. And the idea behind that is the bank managers in those teams know about the industry they're looking after. So one of them was, for example, the retail and wholesale division. So they looked after large retailers and wholesalers, yeah. sort of retail supply chain, really, which was sort of what we'd ended up doing in our business because we'd been delivering into Tesco's and people like that. So I'm sitting there going, I don't know why you want to be talking to me because I've never worked in a bank. And they said, no, that's why we want to talk to you. You've been in the industry. We've got bankers here, but we haven't got people who really understand the industry. So I go up for this interview, and they play silly games with you in, in the interview. right? So the brief is, come up. We'd like you to give a presentation on a challenge you had in your business. Fair enough. Um, and... Uh, we'll also do an interview, and in between it we'll have a little little break. Uh, so we'll start with coffee and just get to know each other, then we'll do the interview, then we'll have a coffee break, then we'll do the presentation. So I report to a reception in Barclays head office at, uh, a bit early, yeah. and I'm due there at midday and I sit down about 10 to 12 or something like that, and uh, midday comes and goes and I'm still sitting there. Um, and then eventually this girl arrives looking slightly flustered and said are you Mr Nicholson I said yes what are you doing here you're meant to be at the other reception round the corner you better hurry up because they've been waiting for you and it's nearly quarter past 12 so 
um, that's not a great start to an interview. So I go around very flustered. Uh, and I go into the interview and they go, well, you know, you're late, so uh, we'll have to skip all the coffee bit and we'll have to change things around to make sure we get what we need out of the interview. So let's go straight with your presentation, please. And I'm standing in front of two corporate, two, the two area directors of manufacturing and retail and wholesale. So I am super intimidated at this point. And they're expecting a PowerPoint presentation, and I've never used PowerPoint, so I start using a flip chart and a marker pen. And that's how I do my presentation. Um, and then we, we don't go straight into the interview, um, and they offer me a job. I, I, well, it doesn't quite work like that. After the interview, I think it's gone badly, because I was late and all this sort of stuff. And I was nervous, you know, I was very nervous. So I came out of the interview and I phoned Nicole and I said, I think I've screwed it up, I'm really sorry. And she said, well, don't worry about it, come home, you know, I'm sure we'll find something else for you to do. About uh, an hour later, I'm on the train and this uh, lady who was the head of retail and wholesale phoned me and said, I just wanted to let you know you've benchmarked for the role. Doesn't mean we're going to offer you the job, but we're going to have a little chat, but you benchmark, you're capable of doing the job. Anyway, about two days later, they offered me the job. And I walked in, uh, and just think about this for a minute, I walked into Barclays head office to take over a team of relationship directors. Now, in Barclays corporate, if you're the best of the best ac uh, account managers, you move into the industry-focused teams. So they're all degree-educated. They've all had 20-plus years in the bank, and they're viewed as the best. And I walk in, and I've got 12 of them reporting into me, and I've never worked in a bank. And that's how it started, day one. So it was interesting. <laughs> and they didn't, they weren't pleased to see me, let's say. They were not pleased to see me. How do you, <laughs> I mean, there's so much to come out of, but firstly, how, how, how do you overcome that? Because you, you walk in that day one. Well, I mean, imposter syndrome. Oh, terrible imposter, terrible, terrible imposter syndrome. Absolutely terrible. I mean, I was bricking it on the train up there. It was awful, um, and I had a little bit of, of an induction and training that went. It lasted a morning. <laughs> so what happened was I sat down with the girl who was Jane, who was going to be my boss, who was the head of retail and wholesale, and she just ran me through the characters in my team. I mean, the whole team was a lot bigger, but I had. She had one half, I had the other half. Yeah. Um, and she walked them through, and I'm making these notes like that, and then at the end of it she said, uh, so that's it, you're on your own, sink or swim. And got up and walked out, and I'm sitting in the cafe in the middle of Barclays Corporate thinking, what the hell am I doing here? So I thought, well, I better go and get these guys together and have a chat to them. And I, honestly, I got them in a meeting room, you could have heard a pin drop, you could have heard a pin drop. They weren't pleased to see me. So I, I said, what we'll do is we'll arrange for one-to-one -one so we can get to know each other. I mean, at this point, I didn't have a laptop or anything. I was waiting for my kit. I didn't have a business card. I had my own mobile phone. It was just, and I was <laughs> completely uh, super imposter syndrome, really. Uh, and then the other thing I learned very quickly was Barclays head office. Well, I had my own parking space under Barclays head office. If I chose to drive my car in, they cleaned it for me while it was parked there. there was a, I had a PA... We had dry cleaning facilities, everything. About the PA would do anything like that for me, you know, get my shoes repaired. What do you need? What do you need? And it all felt a bit weird to me. They just treated you fabulously, really. You go from running your own business where you're 
a marketeer, a can you're, you're doing everything, you're everything yeah. to everybody, yeah. to then going in and... Yeah, and I will never forget the, the very first one-to-one -one I had, this guy came, uh, and we've got a little room of it like this, with glass wall, you know, little meeting room, so I've got coffee and biscuits, and I thought, you know, I need to make a good impression here. Although I'm a bit kind of scared of these clever bankers. <laughs> anyway, he walked in, didn't even knock on the door, he walked in, sat down, and he just sat opposite me, arms folded like that, and I said, so uh, I thought it'd be good for us to get to know each other, and he just went, what gives you the right to lead me? This is the first person. This is the first person. And I'm thinking, oh, God, Jesus, this is going to be difficult, you know. So um, so that was how it started, and that was pretty pretty hard. What's your response to it? Oh, well, I asked him to leave the room. So I, I said, look, you know, I understand. I had to come back with something, didn't I? So I understand how you're feeling, but the reality is, my business card says corporate director and yours doesn't and I am going to be your boss whether we like it or not so why don't you go out of the room and start again by knocking on the door and let's see if we can uh, you know start the meeting a bit better and he did he went out the door I'll tell you something else about him he knocked on the door came in and he said and he stuck his hand out introduced himself and said I'm pleased to meet you and we started again um, and he I, I know him well he now works in this bank I'm in now and we're quite good friends uh, but it Love wasn't that. wasn't like that in the beginning um, but but what I did was uh, I said to them fairly quickly that they hadn't had a team leader who had enough time to go out with them and, and bank managers love their boss to go with them to the meetings and the reason for that is if there's any flack the boss gets it so and they hadn't had that for quite a while and Jane, who was going to be my boss, had tipped me off to that. So I just sat them down. I did the one-to-ones, got to know them a bit. Um, and most of them were on, they weren't all challenging. Most of them were, were, were on that a little bit. You know, who are you? Why are you here? And then we sat down in the meeting and I said, look, guys, you know, I haven't got a laptop or anything, so I can't do any actual real work here. So just take me out. I'll come out with you. Um, and then the game started. So I would get can you come out on this meeting? He's an art dealer. It's just an annual review. Great customer, loves us. And I'd roll up and find that that was bullshit. Um, and he was a very unhappy customer and hated us because we'd pulled his overdraft or something. Yeah. Not only that, he'd been told the corporate director was coming. So he was looking forward to seeing me. You know. Yeah. So we had all of that shenanigans. Um, so I had to sit them down again. And I said, look, don't do that. You know, If it's awful, tell me. I don't mind. Uh, take me to the awful meetings. Yeah. Are these the bits you hate the most? And they said, yeah, they're awful. Because that was at a time, and this is 2008. And banks are pulling over to us. It was a very, very difficult time to be a banker. So I said, look, you know, the reality is my business card says I'm the corporate director. So they can shout at me if you like. I don't mind. And you guys can do the bit that you do. And actually, that's when it all started changing a little bit. Because I said, I don't, I don't mind, I'll take the heat, I don't mind. I, I, you know, you can do your job much better than me. I've never worked in a bank, but I can take the heat. I know how to do that. Because as a small business, you learn that really quickly, <laughs> don't you? Um, so, so that's what we did. Um, and that's when things started to change a little bit. Uh, and then the next thing I discovered was that small business people underestimate how good they are, in my view. Yeah. Because what I realised... I'm sitting in Barclays Bank, right, this amazing bank, and, they, and they've got much better now, but the, the business plan wasn't what I would have called a business plan. It was all about numbers. 
but not what we're going to do, why we're doing it. You know, it didn't feel like the guys knew why they were getting out of bed in the morning. All the simple things that you would cover off as a small business wasn't there. Um, so we started to talk about things like that, and we started, you know, having our own mission statement and why are we doing these things. And we saw, we we had much more frequent touch points with each other rather than they just had a monthly team meeting and the rest of the time they were on their own. We we stopped doing that. We had a weekly call on a Monday morning and we set the week up and uh, and we did a few fun things and uh, and it was just brilliant fun, honestly. And the guys the guys enjoyed it and. I stopped being this strange outsider and I became part of the team. But they still were you know, way better bankers than me. I mean, I'd only been there five minutes. But that's what the bank was looking for, wasn't it? And Something and different. But and, and, uh, so much there about that so many listeners can take away uh, around great leadership, right? And actually just being a good people person. Above all things, there is everything else that we can get, and certificates and letters after our names and all them things. Ultimately, you can sit opposite a person and have a conversation and build a relationship. That's one of the most valuable skill sets as a leader, right? I, I think there's some, th- there's some things that we still talk about now. So the key thing is lead people manage processes don't manage people lead lead people let them make their own decisions let them make their own mistakes uh, and my dad used to try and explain it to me he used to say leadership the clues in a title and if you think about leadership if you think of it everything with him was was military but i always have it in my head a great leader is not the colonel who's five miles behind the lines chomping on a big fat cigar. I mean, I, you know, it's not like that now, of course, but that's, you know, that's the view you have in your head. A great leader is the young sub-lieutenant in the trench. Now think about this for a minute. He hasn't got a tin hat on. He's got a cloth hat on. And he hasn't got a rifle. He's got a pistol. But who goes over the top first? He does. And he's only, once he's done it, those guys will follow him anywhere. So you've got to try and think about that and how do you bring that into your business? And the answer is you find the crappiest part of the job and go and do it. That's what you and do. That's what, and that's what, obviously, like, like you said, you identified that hmm. from an early stage, which yeah. they didn't want it. The part of the job that they yeah, didn't want. Yeah, what do you hate the most? And I'm going to take that on. I'll take that on. And then everything changes. Um, the dynamic, I guess, the dynamic between. Uh, Completely. Uh, and I'm a big fan of things like Tuckman. I don't know if you know about the Tuckman model from the early 60s. So this is the team formation model. When you put a new team together or you change a team by adding people to it, which happens all the time in business, doesn't it? Teams go through various stages. It's, it's called forming, norming, forming, storming, norming, performing. If you look it up, it's really interesting. And there's different leadership styles that you need to use for different stages of it. So the, f- the forming bit is where everyone's overly polite to each other nobody quite knows who fits where so you're all very polite to each other once you settle in then you're jockeying for position and that's storming a few arguments start they test tests of authority see how far you can push your boss that kind of thing Uh, and that's because people want to know where they fit and they're trying to work it out and then when they know you move into norming and then performing is where things just happen 
So at some stages, you need to tell people what to do, but it's very brief. You much, much more quickly move into the facilitation area where you give people permission to do things and encourage them. And normally you can spot that because you're sitting at your desk and every two minutes someone's at your desk going, can I just run this past you? So what you must say to them is, there's, well, what do you want to do? Don't make the decision. Yeah. What do you want to do? Right, go and do it. Well, if it, what if it goes wrong? Well, it's fine. If it goes wrong, we'll learn from it. But don't worry about it. You're allowed to make that decision and you encourage them to do that. Uh, and it's really, really important because if you do that, then they just start doing it if you fall into the temptation of telling them what to do, which is, we all want to do that, because we, we think we know the answer, don't we? <laughs> so, but if you tell them what to do, they will only do it while you, as long as you tell them to. And the day you stop telling them, they stop doing it. So you have to move into this facilitation where, well, they have to be prepared to follow you first, of yeah. course. Um, but if you can move into that, you know, they, and they love it, because the job is more satisfying, because you've empowered them. You've right? empowered them to make decisions. And when it goes wrong, they can't be in trouble. They cannot be in trouble. You've got to have their back and use it as a learning experience. And it takes a lot of self-control because you really want to get in there and tell them what to do, <laughs> you know. Because you might even know they're not making quite the right decision, but it's very, very important that you, you don't do that. And then you end up walking into a team and all the things you want it to happen are just starting to happen. It's fascinating. Fascinating. Touching on that point, then, I want to with the uh, empowering people, allowing them to make mistakes. What, what's your relationship like with, with failure? Like, how, how would you describe your relationship with failure? Uh, well, I had quite a bit of it. I'd say quite a good relationship with it. <laughs> I know it well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might top trump you on that one, but we're going. You might, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you've got to, you've got to be, you've got to have a go, haven't you? And sometimes it doesn't work. Um, I had a fair bit of that. So when I made this jump into banking, there's lots of skills you need which I, I didn't have. So as as a person running a a small fulfilment business, I never made presentations and things like that, and I was expected at the level I was in the bank to be able to do that. Um, and I found myself in, in a room full of leaders and it was pointed out to me very early on that I was the only one in the room without a degree. How did uh, that make you feel? Well, a bit shit really, to be honest. Um, but I, So I decided I would do something about that, so I did a degree. I thought, well, I'm on the train t two hours each way. I'll, I'll do my banking degree, which I did. Um, so they couldn't say that anymore. Um, and they had things like, they were really great presenters because they had years in the bank and loads of different training. I'd had none. Yeah. You know, I'd never done anything. And suddenly I'm standing up in rooms full of people trying to navigate my way through PowerPoint. And I, I failed all over the place, literally all over the place. Um, but you've got to get up there and try and do it. Uh, but each time you do it, you learn something, don't you? And I know motor racing's coming later, but here's, here's a motor racing thing for you. If you're Lewis Hamilton, right, I want you to imagine this is your job, right? You're Lewis Hamilton, probably the most successful driver of all time, probably. Every time you get in the car, 85% of the time you're going to fail. And that's him. 
The rest of us, mere mortals who choose to do that, is probably 95% of the time we're going to fail. Now imagine you had a job where it was like that. Every day you come in, 95 out of 100 days you're going to fail. How do you keep going? How do you do that? Okay, I'm just going to say something about one of our sponsors, Rivervow. The world of cars, vans and minibuses is often a pain point for many of us. The hassle of finding the right vehicle, let alone looking after it, are all more things to add to our lists as busy people. Rivervale's mission is to make motoring manageable, and that's why they provide leasing, purchasing, servicing, and vehicle management. So whether you have one family car or a fleet of vans for your business, Rivervale are your trusted vehicle supplier. Visit www.rivervale.co.uk. Okay, let's jump back to the podcast. What is the answer to that? How do you? How do you? Well, you have to, you have to compartmentalise it, don't you? So you have to go, that was yesterday, this is today. And take the lessons from yesterday and go, okay, well, maybe today it's going to be a 5% day. And it always has to be like that. Always, every single time. And, and motorsport teaches you this because that's the reality is most of the time when you go and race, you're going to lose most of the time and if you're in a race nobody gets every single corner right every single lap you're gonna you're gonna mess up one of the corners more than one probably and you can't worry about it it can't follow you around the track which is your natural human nature you're angry with yourself you have to learn if you do that you're going to mess the next corner up as well so you learn to drop it immediately and move on and it's a huge skill that transfers into business and if you ever watch a motor, uh, a racing driver being interviewed after a bad race, they've already forgotten it, and they're talking about the next race. And that's how they do it. They just put it behind them. They can't do anything about it. It's done, and they move on. And it takes a while to learn that. Um, and it's very transferable. Very, very transferable. So I've tried to use that as much as I can. Let, let, let's jump in there then. Let's jump into the, the motor sport. Like, we couldn't obviously have this conversation without talking about motorsport and your, yeah, your yeah. love for it and go for it. Talk, talk to us a little bit. When, when did that passion first arise? And you've just alluded to there like, how, how many transferable skills can come from that that you've taken into the business yeah. world. Talk to me a little bit about that. So, motor racing started. Um, I'm not 100% sure on the year. It was either 1970 or 1972. I was either 8 or 10 years old, something like that. And the place is Yezolo in Italy. Um, and I'm on holiday with my parents. And in Yezolo, there's a very famous kart track. And, and they had little carts for children to drive. And I got to drive one of these carts. And that was it for me. And the following day, we sat and watched the world, the karting world championship at that track. Uh, and I was hooked. I was, that was just it. I was hooked. And it became my religion, basically. And even, even as a little kid, we were watching Formula One. Uh, we, we lived in Germany then. We found another kart track near where we lived, and we used to go and pay and drive the carts there. Sometimes I couldn't reach the pedals because I was only little. 
Um, and I remained very little. I think when I was 16, I was still only about five foot tall. Um, so sometimes I couldn't go in them because they were too big for me and things like that. But it just became this, this passion, absolute, complete passion that ne that's never left. It's never left me. But because when, when when I said to you about being back at school and your your passions or your was being a, a Formula One racing driver, not one, not not something at school, like obviously, because that you can tell. You talk, we spoke many times about it. You can tell now. Sit you sitting opposite <laughs> me now. He, he lights up, and you can tell. Yeah. You, yeah, yeah. Was was that not? Something. Yeah, I guess so, but I just it, it probably felt. I don't know if it felt unattainable, wh whether I was just too confused at the time about what I should be doing with mm. myself. Mm. So, and I think I didn't have the discipline. I, I was I I was probably rebelling by the time I left school because I went to a prep school at the age of just before my eighth birthday. I went to boarding school. My parents were in Germany. I was in England. And I left 11 years later, and I'd had enough of it. Mm. Um, so I think I was kicking back um, for, for f quite a few years, I think I was kicking back. So I didn't have the clarity of thought, and I definitely didn't have the discipline that is required. And it's also, th there's something in this for, for me, that people go, oh, find your passion, and we'll, we'll really like what you're doing, and mm. go and make a career out of that. And yeah. But actually, caveat to that sometimes is you try and make a career out of it and then do you stop loving it does it stop becoming your passion comes a job because it comes a job yeah exactly so because you've had quite a long karting career <laughs> could we say so i i uh, <laughs> there's, there's a nice little tale into it i drove my i, I i've been invited back to yezalo a few times every year there's a big meeting called Co the Italians do it so much better, don't they? Up here we call it historic cart meeting, right? And they get all the historic carts out. Yeah. You do exhibition laps. Well, they call them exhibition laps. <laughs> we rag them, you yeah, know. Yeah, but yeah. Um, and the, all the carts are on display, and a few famous drivers come in. It's called historic cart meeting. In Italy, it's called Coppa di Campioni. Sounds so much better, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? And it's held at Yezalo. And they'd invited me a couple of times, um, and I hadn't gone. Um, and then I said to Nicole recently, I better go before I'm too old and I'll never do it then. So, and then one of the guys said, uh, we'll, we'll ship the cart over for you or you just pay the cost of it. It was about 300 quid or something. Mm. So they, they shipped the cart over to Italy for me and I flew over and it was just this most amazing experience because the, f the first thing that happened is I'm strolling in and one of my old carts is on display and I'm just thinking, it's a bit weird. It's imposter syndrome all over again. Anyway, I drove a few demonstration laps around here, and it was 50 years almost to the day from when I'd first driven a cart there. And I haven't driven it since. That was it. So, and I've stopped. That was my... So I started and finished in Yezalo, and we've got pictures of... My mum somewhere has got a picture of me in this little cart there. And they took me to the track where the picture was taken and sat me in my historic car and took a picture of me 50 years later. So, um, which is quite nice, you know, yeah, sort yeah. of. Um, but I've had to park all of that now because my body's not really uh, strong enough to do it anymore. But I've loved every second of it, honestly. Absolutely loved it. And, and talk to me a, a bit about more then about the, 
the lessons that you can take from that. Like you said, you've alluded to a couple already uh, that uh, about that failure point. I, 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 I find that fascinating. That that point, especially in motor sport, and and you've got to have, uh, I guess, no fear. I guess sitting in a sitting in a a, a car racing sport whatever it is and you're riding at that speed you've got to, you've got to look at things differently right you've got to look ahead and look at things slightly differently with a lack of with no fear to that would that be right I guess you would yeah well kind of um i my dad used to say he thinks that racing drivers have a bit of their brain missing <laughs> or or a bit of it's just never grown up is another way of looking at it and that is when you're a teenager you have this part of your brain that assesses risk is very small and it's still developing which is why teenagers do crazy things and as you become an adult you, you you're more aware of risk aren't you yeah, sure. particularly as you've learned you know that if you run up the stairs you might trip and fall over yeah. um, so you probably don't do it again and things like that uh, and i don't think that part of my brain it, it never grew up so uh, and that's typical I think of most racing drivers so you get in the car and you never think it's going to happen to you so you just don't think about it you do not think about the risk afterwards when you get out of the car you suddenly go oh that was a bit close you know well if I'd had a puncture there that, but you don't think about it when you're in the, the car or the cart until one day you do and that's the day you need to stop because you can't, you're no longer racing. And I got to that point. I got to, there were various tracks where I knew, for example, the first corner was in theory flat out, and I used to do it flat out, just. I can't do that anymore, because my foot just lifts off the gas. So it's just, it's time to stop. But the psychology of it is fascinating. Because this is what really fascinates me about it, is that, what do you take from that 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 view of risk that you then take into I don't know, the business world, life in general? Well, for, for me, it's a, it's just it's the two things are kind of separate. So if you think about it, um, I've, I've had quite a long banking career now, and most of my time in banking is about minimising risk for people, and then my hobby is about taking risks. <laughs> It's like a balance, isn't it? And the two things are quite different. Um, so so uh, and it's, it's fascinating. And I, th I guess maybe I needed that outlet. I don't know. Um, and I never thought it would happen to me, but sometimes it has happened to me, you know. Um, and I always treated the failure bit as, right, what have I learned? I was straight into, right, what have I learned? Where could I improve the car? Where am I going to find that time? I, it was never... I failed, oh no, and beat myself up. It was always, you know, right, what do I need to do better if I'm going to improve? And actually, the interesting thing for me was it wasn't about being a faster driver. Invariably, it wasn't about that. It was about all the other things that go with it. And I'll give you a, f a really fascinating insight into the, the psychology, and I think you can use this in business. I honestly think you can use this in business. I ended up driving, this is nuts again, this is a stupid thing that should never happen, but I said yes, okay? So we were on holiday in, um, I forget where we were now, I think we were in the States or somewhere like that, um, and I, I was sitting by the pool and I hadn't done any karting for a few years and I said to Nicole, do you know what, 
I think I fancy going back karting again. Maybe I should buy a car. And she said, well, before you do that, why don't you phone your pal who runs the British Championship and just, you know, see if anyone wants a driver. And I, and I was like, I'm 45. No one's going to want a 45-year-old driver. That's ridiculous. But I'll do it anyway. Um, so I did. So I sent uh, this guy called Rene an, uh, an email, and I said, look, you know, I'm thinking of doing it again. Um, do you know anyone that, what do you think, you know? Anyway, he give, I get an email back going, yeah, uh, why don't you ring Dave? Here's Dave's mobile number. When you get back to the UK, give him a call. So I ring Dave. Who I, I, I've got no idea who Dave is. I ring Dave. Dave goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you come to Wilton Mill? Um, we're doing a test day. Come and have a go. So I roll up and I find that Dave owns GMS. GMS is a cart manufacturer. <laughs> it's not what I was expecting. And they've got a big test day at, at Wilton Mill. It becomes clear really quickly that he's having a look at me. And I'm thinking, so imposter syndrome jumps in again. You know, there's all these young lads, super quick, skinny guys and all that sort of stuff. But it turns out that Dave was looking for someone to drive for the factory in his endurance racing team, different skill set. Um, and he really liked what I did that day, much to my surprise. And I find myself driving for his team in the British Championship at 45 years old and this is where I learned so much from him so I said why, why do you want me I'm not I'm never going to be the quickest and I never have been actually mm. he said no I know he said but you're not far off the, the quick guys he said but the difference between you and the quick guys is you just don't make any mistakes you never put a tire off you never you're not going to crash and you deliver the lap times the same lap after lap after lap the same and that's what we want in endurance racing I don't need someone quick who's going to make a mistake. I need someone who can just deliver the lap time. Um, he said, and the rest of it, I'll work with you on. And this is how he did it, and this is what really fascinated me. Wh what The way the day started is you're checked and weighed, and all the, those, and the carts were all scrutineered, and then you all go to driver's briefing, which we used to call the bollocking before you've done anything wrong, which is kind of how it was. This is what's going to happen if you do wrong, we'll black flag you, all that kind of stuff. And everyone's standing there, casually dressed, because we haven't got dressed for racing yet. And the moment driver's briefing, which is held next to the pit lane, the moment driver's briefing is over and you come out of the building, the track is open for practice. But nobody's out, because you've got to go back, get changed into your race suit, bring the carts up, get them started, and off you go. So Dave said to me, I want you to go to driver's briefing in full race kit full race kit with your helmet and gloves in your hand and I said why do I want to do that he said you'll be the only one in the room that looks like a racing driver and they're all going to look at you in your lovely nice clean race suit and go god he looks the business and they'll think of you in their mind they're just going to lodge this thought that you look like a proper racing driver so we did that and he said and when you walk out of driver's briefing I'll have your cart sitting there ready for you, running, and I want you to get in it and go straight out on the track. So I was like, okay, but why are we doing that, Dave? He said, because by the time they bring their carts up and get them out, you'll be going round fast because you'll be, you'll be 10 laps in. And the rule is when you come out onto track in a cold cart, if anyone's coming round on hot laps, you have to get out of their way. So he said, they're all going to have to get out of your way. That would be the first thing that happens to them when they come on track, is they've got to get out of your way. He said, and when you're going slowly coming out of the pits and someone comes back at race pace, they look really fast. 
even if they're not they look really fast so you said by five minutes into practice they've already thought you look like a racing driver and they've had to let you past and they think you look quick now we both know I'm not the quickest but you look it um, he said and I promise you that will pay dividends and then he said the next thing we will do is the setup on your car we've concentrated on race setup so you're not going to qualify that well but the cart will be easy to drive and will race well. Everyone else tries to put a qualifying setup on, so normally that means the cart's horrible to drive, but it's fast, but pretty awful to race with. So we didn't b worry about that, and I would normally qualify sixth, seventh, maybe eighth, something like that. Um, and, and he said, what will happen now? He said, on the first lap, when you put your nose of your car inside them, they'll get out of the way because they think you're quick and that's what will happen and all we practiced during the practice because we knew the car was set up all we practiced was the first two laps of the race so I would go out do a formation lap which is what you do and then do two flying laps and come in so I knew exactly what the car felt like on the first two laps and that's what we concentrated on and then um, uh, it's really interesting psychology, isn't it? And then what happened on, on the race, uh, lining up for the race, they put all the carts on the grid, a bit like you see in a Formula One race, um, and the drivers are out of the cart, and then they call you up, and you all go and sit in the cart, and he said, don't come when they call you. He said, come when I wave to you. And I said, well, what's that about? He said, you just come when I... And when I wave to you, I want you to walk up the middle of the grid and get into your cart. He said, because then they'll have to wait for you. And that's another little psychological thing. So it all builds together that they think you're a proper racing driver, you're clearly quick, they've already got out of the way of you once, and you're some sort of important person because everyone had to wait for you before the race started. And then he said, I want you to then use what you learn in the, te the testing session in the first two laps. I want you to go fully aggressive and overtake everyone that you can, and you know what your cart feels like. And on the first couple of laps, everyone's very tentative. Well, I wasn't. And they got out of the way. And the idea was to try and get me in the first four or five. And then we did lifting and coasting. Because the other thing that we'd realized is everyone goes, uh, and uh, 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 the first stint I did was an hour long, one hour in a car, hard work. Right? So we trained for it. I was fit enough that I could do an hour with no sweat at all. So we would lift and coast. Because we realized if we lifted and coasted, we could do an hour and 10 minutes. So I would try and get in the top five and just follow them. I, wasn't, I didn't want to overtake them. I just followed them. So you just kind of step it down a little bit. You lift off a little bit earlier. You just follow them. Sit in their draft, and it saves a surprising amount of fuel. And then the moment they start pitting, Dave used to wave a flag to me, and I had 10 minutes then on low fuel, and I used to go for it. But they were sitting stationary in the pits while we were out on track with 10 minutes fuel left. And invariably, then when I pitted and handed over to the second driver, we were in the lead. And I wasn't the fastest driver. And it's all in the psychology. It's absolutely fascinating. And I think if you're a small business, you can use all of that. If you roll up an event and you look the business, people you know, form an opinion about you, don't they? And, and you just think about how you can use all of those things. If you're going to a meeting, here's another little trick. You're going to a meeting, you're a small businessman, get there first, 
be in the meeting room first, have your chair and your jacket over the back of it. They're joining your meeting, not the other way around. There's all these little tricks that you can use. And that's, that's the equivalent to Dave, you know, going, you come on the grid when we're ready and make everyone else wait. All those kind of things. Completely transferable, fascinating psychology. So I won lots of races without being the quickest. But they thought I was. It's amazing, isn't God, it? So much. It's, so, well, <laughs> it's mind-blowing. But there's so much to take from it. But it, like, and even like you said, those the consistency, marginal gains, marginal all, gains, all yeah. those little yeah. things that you can go. What could back to the one percent rule? One percent. Yeah. Just little incremental things that you yeah. can change in your day-to-day yeah. life, business, whatever that is, to just get you that little bit. And, and to do all of the things I've just described. You know, it was hard for me at 45, and it got harder as I got older because mm-hmm. the level of fitness to drive a two-stroke race car for an hour, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to get there. But we worked at that, and I was fit enough that I would get out at the end of it, and I was fine. And they noticed, you know, people, other drivers notice. And they go, they're like, well, you know, he's not even worn out. He's, um, uh, and it's kind of what Schumacher did in Formula One. If you ever watch Formula One, he got up on the, he, he looked fresh as a daisy. The others looked destroyed, you know. Um, and this is this psychological edge. And I, you can do it in business. You make sure you're fit enough. Work on it. You know, watch your diet. Make sure you're fit. Get some exercise, whatever it might be. And for me, that was hard, you know. To, uh, so I used, we used to live in Worthing, and I commuted into Hove and Brighton, and I used to cycle, and, and it made me get on the bike on a cold, rainy day because I still I needed that fitness. I wanted that fitness, and I wanted to. And, uh, and you know, a lot of races came back to us just because we had a better level of fitness than everybody else. And we had four drivers in my team, all the same, all fit, all using the same kind of psychology, and we worked hard at it. And we won races that we shouldn't have won. And it was great fun. I did it for two years, and then I thought, I have to stop, you know, because it was getting too hard. And then I went historic karting. So all of that is transferable. You have to sort of go, what do I need? What do I need to be really fit for the business I'm running? What does the business need to be really fit? Where are the incremental gains in the business? it's often little things. Well, one of the things that always interests me, see a business start up, and they grow really quickly, don't they? And then they stop. Why do they stop? The reason they stop is they've probably stopped doing the things they did when they first started. They stop marketing at the same level. They stop doing mail shots or whatever it might be. And the, and, and the, the growth slows down. So why have they stopped doing that? This is Geo. Geo runs a scarf company. Geo doesn't see the need for telecoms. Everybody uses mobiles now. But can a mobile really be a business phone? Geo is having coffee with a client, Gabby. Well, actually, Geo prefers acacia leaf tea. But what happens when someone calls? It could be a big new deal. Surely it would be rude to take the call? But many people hate leaving messages. They may just call a competitor instead. What can Geo do? The answer is simple. Turn the mobile into a business phone. With the GoGiraffe app, Geo can quickly transfer the call. Or before the meeting, Geo can simply use the app to divert calls. 
no more missed calls, lost deals or unhappy customers. Turn your mobile into a business phone today. Go Giraffe. Yeah, you're, you're, you're what? Settled, don't you? You settle. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, and it's not settled. it's not even I don't think it's even a conscious thing. Yeah. And you get busy, there's stuff to do, so it kind of you know. For me, one of the biggest things out of, out of everything you've just said there is 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 paying attention to the very small details. Oh yeah. And we, we, we we tested everything. So like that finding we could squeeze one hour, 10 minutes out, we found by trying it. You know, we tried it on a test day and we were doing things like changing the tire pressures by one PSI and things like that, just trying to find that little. Uh, and the rationale we had is if we can, I'll tell you about the engines in a minute and it's nuts the level we went to. If, if we can get the best possible engine, that might be worth a tenth or two. If we can get the tyre pressures just right, that might be a tenth or two. And if we can make sure the driver is really fit and on his best game, that might be a tenth or two. And you add those incremental things up, you, you find half a second. And it's not all in the driver, you see, it's all everywhere else. Uh, and, and the way that they did it was just unbelievable. So the first time, it really surprised me, the first time I come into the pits in my car, and they're immediately taking the temperature in three different places on all the tyres. And they don't look at the pressure gauge, they look at the temperature of the tyre. And what they did is they take the temperature on the two outside edges and the middle of each individual tyre and they note it down. They're looking for the temperatures to all be the same. So if the middle one's higher than the outside one, the pressure's too high on that tyre. So they just knock it down half a PSI or something. And they're just nibbling away at it till they've got all the tyres at the right temperature. And the moment they got there, they said, right, park the car, get out, let it cool down, let it cool down, take the tyre pressure, that's the cold tyre pressure that is going to work. And that's the sort of level of detail they went into. It's just extraordinary. And, and what they did with the engines is we had two, just for my car that I was driving, one car, the engines cost about £3,000 each. They bought 10. 10 engines, ran them all in, and then stripped them. And then you, you have a fiche for the engine of what everything should measure, and they measured all the parts against the fiche and selected all the parts that were closest to the regulated fiche. And, and if you build the engine from that, because you're not allowed to modify them, that will be the best and quickest engine. So they built that, then they built a second best, and those were our two engines, and they sold the rest. So the whole exercise of that cost them, but we had two fantastic engines. Just again, that little tenth there, tenth on the tyre pressures, made sure we were fit, made sure we were hydrated. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Like, like you said. <coughs> but I couldn't keep it up at 45 years old. I just couldn't keep, you know, it's just too hard. It's so, it, like you said, for me, there's so much, there's so much in all of that. And, and I've heard... Um, was but um, the cycling coach who done yeah. very similar thing with the, the, the marginal gains, marginal gains, marginal gains. and it, when you when you listen to these conversations and the amount that people can take just as a small business owner if they listen to just this little section of the podcast but take away their what are the marginal gains in your business 
business. What, what, I mean, yours, for example. Yeah. What are the marginal gains in your business? What are they? It's, for, for, for me, it's so much. I, like, I, I, I find this is why I find it so fascinating because the podcast itself is so much. Like, I, I play around with everything from the title to the thumbnail that I'm going to use to the to the wording on that thumbnail to see what, and then you try and test something that goes mm-hmm. actually. Why is that? Why is that title got? Five thousand views as opposed yep. to that one. Well, I think that's a yep. really great clip. Actually, yep. is that was that the greatest clip? Could I use that to entice people more? And it's the attention to. Uh, we, I love this so much because I get to have these conversations. I'll go away. One of my favourite parts is going away, listening back to it, and going, "What can I? What part can I take out of this conversation?" I think there's going to be quite a few in this one now. I'm not going to lie, but what part can I take out where you go? people's attention on that bit yeah. because there's so much gold in there those little gold nuggets that you're listening to so it's, but there's so much to it that I go right all of those little minor details is going to enhance that episode that little bit more yeah I think and I think I think that's great and you know if people can start thinking about their business in terms of marginal gains because most businesses are going quite well. You know, if, you, if you're a small business and you've survived for it, I mean, some of them are amazing and incredibly resilient people. But if you can get them to start thinking about their business, um, what are the marginal gains, and they can start thinking about that, you know, it, it, it's a, a hugely cumulative effect. What was it we said this morning? If you if you improve by one percent a month in three years' time, you're a different person. You know, how, you can imagine that in your business, and it's just phenomenal. So. Yeah, it's fascinating. Look, I, I want to, throughout for everyone's journey, I always want to highlight or, or talk about some of the struggles and challenges that you face and how we sort of overcome them. We've delved into a bit about mindset around failure and stuff like that, but pick any point of your journey, whether it be running a business, running banking, motor racing, whatever that be, talk to me about a challenge you've faced. face that I overcame and what I learned from it um, yeah there's been a few probably I would say uh, I, um, I'm going through one at the moment actually as you know so um, I, I, um, I've had some ill health since last July which has had a really pretty big impact on me um, and it's been quite difficult and it's been difficult in the sense that I didn't have a clear recovery roadmap and I didn't know if I was going to recover and if I did what was it going to be like um, uh, and that becomes very difficult so uh, I, I tried to still do that daily thing of getting up and going right it's a new day I've got to try and improve a bit today so, so I was I was doing I couldn't walk you know so the first physio session that I went to Nicole wheeled me around there in a wheelchair you know, so it becomes small, small goals. So I was determined to walk to the physio, and it's behind our building. You know, it's not, it's not very far, <laughs> but I couldn't do it. Um, and I think we did two physio sessions like that, and by the third one, I was on a pair of crutches walking, um, slowly. Um, so it becomes these little goals that hopefully will take you in the right direction. So I concentrated on that. I concentrated on when I got 
given my physio exercises, I did them every day. Because uh, the physio said to me that if you do them every day, most people don't. I thought, well, I will. And she said, and every hour you need to get up and move. So I've got this little thing that goes off every hour, and I get up. I wasn't going to work. I couldn't work. So every hour it went off, and I got up and did something. You know, I had to walk around the flat. And it was pathetic. You know, I got up. I could walk around the flat twice, and I was done in. Things, things like that. But I did it every day, every single day. And then the next morning I got up, and I did it again. And I tried not to think about anything other than today. I've just got to do it today. Oh, you know what I was like then, you, you saw me. Um, and gradually, it's been improving. And I just kept going. Uh, and I think that's this resilience piece that I, I honestly think everyone can do that. Everyone. I really believe that they can. And Nicole was amazing, and she did exactly the same thing. It was hard for her, you know. But every day we just went, right, here we go again. And we often say that to each other now. Right, here we go again. And we just go for today. Uh, and it's been hard, uh, but I am walking again now, and you know I'm back at work, which is which is good. It's great to hear. But like you said, I, I, I think you underestimate how inspiring, even at that point of us catching up. Well, I hobbled into the cafe with my sticks. That's what I mean. I, 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 I still remember, because I, I remember speaking to Rachel, and she said that you, and I don't, I haven't seen you for a little bit, and then she mentioned that you haven't been well. Or not. So I reached out, and you, you, you told me what had happened. Um, and and I remember saying, oh, look, uh, let's meet up. I'd love to have a coffee. And I remember you, I remember you coming, no, I'll come to you. I'll come to, uh, I'll, I'll meet to get out and do that. And you come down and crutches and come and sat, sat with me and talk, told me what, what had been going on and just so inspiring to hear. like you said I think for me what I take out of that and a lot of the conversation is that, that we do all have a choice and it's how mm. we when we get up every day what choice can we make that is just that day what can we do today that can make me get a bit better whether it be health whether it be your business yeah. work, whatever it is is there something in there where I said, look, I'm going to just achieve that today, that yeah. thing, and that will be, and celebrate that small win. Yeah, yeah. And the consistency of it as well. Like, and it, you go, we go back to the motor racing. Hmm. What you've taken from motor racing, I guess, your mindset alone into as how much that must have helped you from that challenge with your ill health. I think so. Consistency. Yeah. But there's also a piece that we've we talk about quite a lot, you have to help yourself. So the, the view I had was if, if the physio said you need, to, and the exercise is really hard, you know, if they said this is what you need to do, then you've got to help yourself, you know. So you have to do them. Or you, you know, it's no good sitting there six months later and going, oh, I'm not getting any better. Uh, well, have you done the exercises? Well, no. You know, it's just, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. And I had simple stuff, sounds simple stuff. You know where I live, and you know there's a church on a corner that serves coffee. It's not far, is it? Yeah, I couldn't do it. So that became a goal. I wanted to get to the church and buy myself a coffee, and I, d I literally couldn't do it. And it took, it took a few weeks before I could get there. Yeah. And, and when I got there, I needed a rest. I needed a coffee and a rest before I could get back. You know, and that became... Now I can do it without, you know. <laughs> but that became, uh, it's, it's, you just keep going. You go, right, I'll do that, I'll do that. And if I think if you can transfer that to business, 
You know, there's lots of things that you can do. You just keep at it. One of the biggest things that came out of it, I guess, for me, is resilience. That yeah, resilience. It took to. I think as a as a any business owner, any entrepreneur, anyone listening, whatever industry you're in, whatever wherever stage you are in your life, as tough as things get, having that resilience to just go, just get up that next day and go again. We we I was talking about it to a guy yesterday, funnily enough, and we were talking about. Um, the admirals, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, the yeah. admirals film and stuff like. But but we were talking about it, um, the stories that you tell yourself. We invent these stories; they're not true. Mm-hmm. So we tell ourselves a story that we can't do something. It's all just this internal voice. But but it's interesting to question yourself sometimes and go, is that really true, or is that something I've just made up? Because often the, you can't find any facts in there, so you've just made up in your mind that you can't do something, or you're not very good at it, or you know it's going to go this way or that, whatever it might be. We've all got these internal voices, but it's quite interesting to question those internal voices sometimes and go, why do I think that? You know, where's the facts? Where's the evidence? And if there aren't any, then the conversation changes a little bit, and you start to wonder whether you know maybe maybe there's a different version of that. It's some, there's a guy come on one of the first series I did and there's a guy come on Steve Salis and he talks about self-talk the importance of mm. good self-talk and he, he goes into schools and talks to kids about it and the importance of that and the narrative we tell exactly what you're saying mm. the narrative that we tell ourselves and making sure that that's a positive narrative and yeah. because actually how we are with other people sometimes I could sit there and talk really positively about you and talk about and insights and wisdom that you've shared with us today and how it made you up. But then, actually, what we tell ourselves sometimes is not always the same. People would say some nice things, have said some nice things mm. about me, and and but you don't necessarily always believe them yourself. And it's so important to... And it helps with, like, like you said, we've, we've alluded to imposter syndrome. We talked about that a little bit today. And actually getting out of that is by telling, being confident and telling ourselves the things actually that other people would tell us and, and yeah. try and believe them. It's quite hard though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And you can't be positive all the time. We all have good days and bad days. 100%. Yeah. 100%. And, and it's recognising that. I think it's mm. important. Like I, would, I, I used to see that as a really bad trait, actually. Like for, so for me, because I'm always positive, I've got a mm. smile on my face, that's how I, I felt. When I did have them down days and I weren't feeling like 100%, mm. didn't feel like I was able to talk about that so I'd have to put on this mask and, and not necessarily be authentic mm. but actually it's okay it doesn't mean I'm a yeah. negative person by doing that no. it's just going actually I'm having a bit of a shit day today yeah. and it's okay and I might have a coffee with you and after that coffee with you I feel a bit better about it because we've had a chat about something and you go okay and and you've cha- reframed that in your head or, or whatever that looks like but if I just turned up at that meeting and did, weren't truthful with you and just gone oh yeah yeah great yeah everything then I'm positive and blah blah blah, blah. But, yeah. but we're, we're very British about it aren't yeah, we how are you yeah fine <laughs> but if you ever tried saying to someone actually I'm a bit crap today they don't really want to talk about it do yeah, they yeah, yeah. it's getting better though I do it's think that's getting yeah. better I do think that's getting better and have you ever I know I shouldn't be interviewing you but have you ever um, considered sort of gut instincts you know, sometimes you've just got a feeling about something. Have you ever thought about that and 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 um, 
looked back on when that's happened and what decisions you've made? In, in, in what sense? So, that, so the reason I'm asking you is I, I've, I find it really interesting. So when we ran our business, Nicole and I invariably took our decisions based on our gut instinct. Yeah. And it was only, I got to wondering about it one day and I started reading about some of it. And, and the reason you get this gut instinct is because 80% of our communication is nonverbal. I know you and I are sitting here, I'm waving my arms around, but you're not, but, um, but we're kind of doing the verbal yeah. bit, but 80% of it's non-verbal. So what, and we're still just a, a creature, really, rather, you know, if we part the human bit, we're just a, an animal underneath. And we're picking up on all this stuff and we don't realise it. So when you get the gut instinct, it's because you're picking up on these clues, that, but you haven't realised that you're, you're kind of subconsciously picking up on it. So we used to go... Let's just follow our gut instincts. And so often they were right. So often. And and it fascinates me. And so I've I've tried since then not to ignore my gut instincts, even if it feels like the wrong decision. Mm -hmm. So I I wonder often whether people are are really listening to to that part of themselves Mm -hmm. and going, why do I feel uneasy about that? Often it's about a person, isn't it? There's something not quite right there. And then you find something out, don't you? Or, or they don't turn up, and you just kind of go, I knew they weren't going to turn up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've definitely, something I, I've definitely, I think, got better at over the, mm. over the years. I think early on, especially in my business career, I don't think I listened to my gut enough. Mm. I think I just, I know, that's, I don't, just didn't trust myself enough. I think yeah. Uh, yeah. That comes a little bit, uh, I believe, a bit with experience. You like to think wisdom, maybe, but f- through experiences, lived experiences that you, to, because you, you question then at that point, actually, oh, I had listened to my guy at that point, that was the right decision. Yeah, yeah. And then you go, oh, actually, yeah, then again. And do you again. beat yourself up when you've got the wrong decision? Um, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not too bad at that, actually. I, I'm, I'm okay. Again, back to the, I think, reframing for me. Mm. Uh, we spoke about it before, but for me, I reframed failure in my head quite early on after the salon. Yeah. I lost money, yeah. sold my house, and did the. Uh, and I think from from that I reframed failure because I knew that it w- I learned so much from that, and it got mm. me where I'm sitting here now doing a podcast. And doing and would you change anything? You know what? I, I, no, I wouldn't. No. I wouldn't. No. And and, it was, and that's one just before we come towards the end. One, I wouldn't. That's something I always ask, and I find fascinating about. I look back at your journey and your story, and that's one of the questions I ask. Would, would you? Would is there any part of your journey? If you could go back and change any part of it, would you have? No, nothing. Because then I wouldn't be, I I like where I'm at today. I I love my life. I love my job. And I'm happy in my skin. And I wouldn't be like this if I changed anything. I honestly wouldn't change anything. There's some bits that were a bit crap, if I'm honest, you know, bits that are really difficult. You know, I think I'm really lucky. I've got a really good life. Yeah. And that alone, sitting there, that it's what everyone, where we all would love or want to be, happy in our skin. Love what yeah. I, do. I mean, I wouldn't even change what's happened to me in the last year. Uh, and the, re- the reason for that is I don't think I could have got any closer to Nicole. We've got a great marriage, and I don't think we could ever have got any closer. But we have. Since this happened to me in the last year, we've got closer through it. Mm. 
So I wouldn't even change that. You know, it's been awful, of course, mm. you know. But I wouldn't even change that because there's been such a great positive upside in, our, in terms of our relationship. It's, uh, you know, it's just been great, really. Although parts of it I could have done without, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Sure. But yeah, you but know, I, w I wouldn't change anything. I mean, I, I joined Barclays. That was a bit weird, as I said, but I, I had an incredible career there. Mm. Um, and, and I've got a job that I really like and enjoy. So, mm. yeah. Well, look, that leads us so nicely as we're going to round up. Um, again, uh, we, we could have just ordered lunch in me and you could see it for another couple of hours. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> no, we're, yeah. um, yeah. we're, we're, com we're coming to a, towards the end, and as always looking at where you've been, where you are now, where you're going. Define success for me. Oh, I hate these sort of questions. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's so difficult, isn't it, to define success? Because um, it's different for everyone, right? It is completely different but for everyone. But for you, what, what, how I do you define it? I, I honestly think if you're... If you're in, in a space in your life that is fulfilling, which I am, then it, that's, that's success. Uh, uh, if you've got relationships with good people, that's success. And, and when you're gone, nobody remembers the money side. They remember who you were and the impact you had on people, not how big was Sam's business or anything like that. And we, we can get wrapped up in financial success, but I think that's probably a hygiene factor, i.e., have you got enough money you know, to live and do the things you want to do? So it's, it's much more on the human side for me. I, I feel very fulfilled in my life, so I think that's a success for me. What does the future hold for you? A few more years of doing this, I hope. So um, I've, I've probably got another five years before they will start encouraging me to retire. Um, and, and I, you know, I think I'll enjoy those years. Uh, when I retire, I'd like to go on a bit of a world trip while I still can. Well, I, hopefully I'm fit and well. Uh, so we'll, we'll do that, Nicole and I, go off and see. We've seen quite a lot of the world, but there'll be more. Um, and... Uh, I want to carry on involved being. I don't drive in motor racing anymore, but I think I can add value to people there, and I get a lot of reward from doing that. So I'll probably do a bit more of that when I retire. Yeah, I'll, I, I won't go quietly and wither away. I'll, <laughs> I'll find things to do. Um, you know, when we're back from trotting off around the world, I'll, I'll still. I think I'll still need something to do. Uh, so. Uh, I think it'll probably be that. I like working with young people. That's quite rewarding. I don't know. We'll see. But there'll be something. Mm. There'll be something. Well, mate, honestly, um, as like I say, over the last year, we've had many of these types of conversations, and I knew this would be absolute gold, and it has been. And um, it's such a, been such a honour, privilege, and to get to know you. you know, that, that, see, that feels weird to me now. <laughs> it just feels well. <laughs> why is it an honour and a privilege? You know, I find don't don't. It's just weird. Imposter syndrome, probably, but I don't know. Like, like, like I say, you, you, for me, I mentioned it in the introduction. I think we, we go through life, and we do meet people that 
there's just an instant connection there that, yeah. and it transcends something more than a business relationship or, yeah. or, or things like that and, and that is where there's a privilege I think for on certainly on my part and uh, and I mean I love having these chats yeah. I, I, I always take stuff away yeah. from oh, conversations just so much so much insights and wisdom that I've, I've gained from it and it's been a it's been an absolute pleasure having you on mate so thank you for, for sharing your story with us thank you it's been that's good fun uh, that's uh, as they say different hats <laughs> and he's got his hat love that my christmas hat <laughs> different hats and that what a perfect way to finish <laughs> off. that as they say is a wrap <laughs>